0: Miss the show, no worries. On point. on this podcast, the Conservative Party is the gift that keeps on giving to Justin Trudeau. Yes, the party again embroiled in a infighting dumpster fire, throwing out another leader. But then what happens? If Erin O'Toole goes, who can actually lead the party? Who can unite a very angry base while growing the party to actually find a pathway to victory in liberal vote-rich 905-416? It's not easy to do in a country that generally votes classic liberal, albeit it is far more left these days, but who can Take that path and find it. We'll talk about that. We've got uh, restrictions finally lifting, and soon we're going to start to get a better understanding of the destruction that has happened to our main streets. And just because you haven't seen a closed sign in the window does not mean that a business has survived this thing. So we're going to talk about what's a, a zombie business. They may have been able to survive the last few months on government aid and move debt around and, you know, buy themselves time, but the aid is coming to a stop, and many businesses could actually now start getting pushed off the cliff. So we'll talk about that. And for all this talk about roaring back, Ontario just keeps falling further and further behind. And when you compare us to similar states across the border that we used to compete against, we are no longer not even competitive. But when you compare what they make versus what we make for the same kind of work, we are way behind. And these are the things that should become Ontario provincial election issues. The question is, will they? Let's get talking.
1: This is on point with Alex Pearson. You
0: no, know, I have my hands full. I love being premier
2: of this province. We're going to build this province, and, and I'm going to uh, continue uh, leading this province. Uh, that, that's my job. I am just, you know, twenty four seven working on getting us out of this pandemic i want to unite this province i I can't stand this divide when i see this divide in this country and in this province i want people united
0: doug ford has no interest replacing arrow tool but he will be replaced alex pearson with you on this tuesday february first welcome to a new month happy chinese new year and great to have you along. It's one of those uh, news days where I, like, I looked and I was like, I don't know what to cover because there's too much and there's just never enough time. So I'm going to get through as much of it as I think I can because we've got to talk about the snow, which is coming, it's never going to end, and then, of course, the convoy protests, which could be snowed in by the snow. And, of course, this thing's driving Ottawa's political class batty. Jim Watson wants them gone. Some people are suggesting the military should be brought in to get them out, which, like, sorry, what? And then you go, you know, look, I don't really have skin in this game, right? I I totally get what this thing's about. I totally saw the anger. I've seen this building for a while, but I don't have any skin in this game. But I do find it amusing that those who are all good with pipeline and railroad blockades, you know, those can go in the weeks. Parks can be taken over by homeless advocates that's all good But they have zero protests what we're on day four of this protest five four i mean come really i do think the truckers have made their point i think that they you know risk overplaying their hand and word is you know there's other convoys trying to cross over there's one uh, in alberta which has i guess set up a blockade rcmp are now involved so we're keeping our eye on that Maybe all this stuff um, is just getting further fueled. Uh, you heard by now in our news, Premier Legault has abandoned his tax on the unvaxxed. Yeah, he's dumping this, of course, citing, well, it's division. It's, uh, you know, it's dividing people. <laughs> oh, gee, really? I mean, imagine that. Which is what, you know, this whole issue was never anything but political. It's the games politicians have been playing with this pandemic, the weaponization of policies so that they don't look like they're not doing their job. But it's playing these games that causes their anger. So uh, these convoy truckers may actually see this as a win because they'll say, hey, look at the noise we made and uh, look, you know, Mr. Legault back down. But then the premier weighed in today saying, yeah, it's you got to go.
2: I put a a strong statement. I'm putting a strong statement out today that people have to, you know, move on, let the people of Ottawa live, let the businesses open up, and that's my statement.
0: There you go. Uh, Now, Ford's got to be careful. He is actually responsible for the world's longest lockdowns in this province, and uh, word kind of creeping around tonight is that the convoys may roll up to his front doors at Queen's Park, which then could cause him a... An awful lot of headaches. Because I can tell you right now, the people of Toronto will have no time for trucks. Those working class people are just a pain. Get rid of them, they will say. But certainly, um, at the end of all of this, the convoy protesters wanted Trudeau to go. And it looks like Aaron O'Toole is going to be the one walking in the snow. And look, I think Mr. O'Toole is a decent guy. And I've never had an issue dealing with him. But I, I am disappointed with his leadership. I find it to be wishy-washy. It's been frustrating for him not to be able to take a position, like, on anything. And that has angered the base. It has angered the party. And so O'Toole is saying he's not going anywhere. But the bottom line is he can't survive this leadership review that's been forced upon him by the party, which will happen tomorrow. He just doesn't have the numbers. And we'll go through all the technical stuff that has to happen in, in a few minutes. But he just he's not going to win. And there will be those who argue, look, it's a mistake, you can't change leaders every time, there's a loss. But since losing the election, O'Toole, like Scheer, just keeps getting in his own way because of his inability to take a stand on anything, which means he stands for nothing. I mean, the liberals have shown, look, they will stand by their guy no matter what. The corruption, don't care. Groping allegations, don't care. Blackface, all good. And no matter the scandal, they stay true to Trudeau. He's good. And then you got got Meat Singh. That guy can fail forever. His party will never hold him to account because he's trying. It's like the participation ribbon of politics. He's doing a good job and people like him. Then you get the conservatives, which light these dumpster fires all the time. And so they're in panic mode. They're seeing their support flood over to Bernier and the PPC. They've got their fundraising dollars, which are completely drying up. So the knives are out. And for Trudeau, this is great. He's got his popcorn. He's going to sit back and enjoy this show. Because as long as the conservatives are punching themselves in the face, he knows he'll just keep getting away with everything.
3: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: All around the world. All around the world. The headlines are rightfully admonishing Trudeau for his inflammatory comments on these trucking protests. I mean, they're mo- they mock his blackface. They mock his many failures. And here, we got an opposition party that just can't capitalize on it. So who takes over? Certainly uh, Pierre Polievra is making no secret that he is going to be in the running. I mean, the base loves him. I really like Pierre Polievra. He's an amazing attack dog. Very smart. He would absolutely wipe the floor with Trudeau. The question, though, becomes, you know, can he win more support if he's chosen leader? Can he broaden the base? Can he actually win over votes in the 416? And I don't know. Patrick Brown's name, of course, will be floated out there. Remember, he ran his provincial campaign when he was leader of the um, PC party on a more inclusive party. He's got huge support in the 905. He's done a pretty good job during the pandemic, pushing back against a lot of lockdown measures. And he also has name recognition, so he will be probably a name coming up. I suspect if he's paid off all his debts that Peter McKay will take another run. I suspect Leslie Lewis will be on the ballot. But there's others that I'd like to see. I'd love, and I, I'm not beyond begging at this point, but I'd love to see a guy like Brad Wall be on that ballot. You know, he's a he's a, a nice guy. He's decent. He is a good leader. He he would be good. I think Lisa Rate was a mistake. She should have been picked the first time around. I think they'd be in power now if she had uh, been chosen. But again, that was then, this is now, and I don't think she'll be putting her name back on the ballot. So... I don't know who we'll see. But I will take anybody who can beat a scandal plagued corrupt leader with a blackface career. I'm not asking for much. That shouldn't be hard to do, but that is what I would like. And shuffling leaders out every couple of years is not a winning strategy, but neither is losing. I mean, this party needs a leader who can outsmart the very predictable liberal smears. They need someone who's not afraid to take a stand, someone who can unite and control the party, and who runs as an actual conservative. Not trying to be, you know, pretending to be someone else. That's just my advice.
3: O'Toole is out. Pierre is in.
0: In my opinion, he needs to go.
3: I think he's a wet noodle. I think if he had uh, an ounce of spine, the Conservatives would have won this last election. Aaron O'Toole's got to go. The Conservatives are losing everybody's vote on this side of the uh, the aisle.
0: Boy, politics is so mean. Holy. Politics is such a mean, mean world, but that is a a taste of the feedback we've been getting throughout the day since news broke that Aaron O'Toole could possibly be out as leader. But how do we get here? Um, After losing the election, O'Toole decided that he'd put off the leadership review until August 2023. He thought that was a good idea. This infuriated a lot of people in the party who wanted that review to be immediate, right after the election, get her done. But after the election, the one that was the most consequential of our time, and, uh, you know, MPs are just getting back to work now, um, the party also gave itself power to force a review if it could get 20% of support in the party. And guess what? It did. So tomorrow, O'Toole faces a vote by his colleagues, with at least a third wanting him gone. But there are absolutely more votes, because the party would not be doing this if they knew that they didn't have the numbers. They've got The numbers. Chris Chapin is a strategist and a managing principal over at Upstream Strategy. He has also worked in politics for years and been through, I'm sure, a few dozen of these leadership battles. Good to have you, Chris.
1: Always a pleasure. Out.
0: All righty. So the fight, um, you know, over the next few months is going to be waged right out in the open, but the next 24 hours really is uh, going to be, I think, fairly ugly. Take us through, you know, what the procedure is. I mean, I kind of put the bones of it there. But what what would be going on behind the scenes here?
1: Well, it's exactly how you laid it out, Alex. I mean, the only caveat and and correction I'd make is that Aaron O'Toole actually asked his caucus to enact what is called the Reform Act. There was a piece of legislation that one of his colleagues, Michael Chong, brought in back in 2014 under Stephen Harper, because he thought at the time they needed to democratize how caucuses operate. And this gave caucus the opportunity and the power to kick out a caucus member or remove a leader for example and that's exactly what we're seeing take place now you know the threshold to initiate a a vote for you know a leader in caucus is 20 percent which uh of the the cpc caucus uh they they well surpassed with the 35 members who've signed the letter to the caucus chair requesting this vote that'll take place tomorrow and so what will take place is a secret ballot vote in the caucus meeting uh, you know, all 119 caucus members, we've got to say on on the future of Aaron O'Toole as leader. And, and I think, as you alluded to, you know, the letter that was put forward to the caucus chair only consisted of 35 signatures. Uh, from what I've been told, there are certainly some glaring names, people with leadership ambitions that are off there, people that are known to dislike Aaron O'Toole that aren't included on that 35 uh, MP list that was provided to the caucus chair requesting this vote. And so what comes next is, is ultimately and what's playing out in the back rooms right now is trying to figure out exactly how large that opposition is. You know, if, it, if it's over 50 percent, O'Toole's out automatically as leader. And although he'd stay on technically as the Conservative Party leader, you'd think he'd read the tea leaves and, and a formally step down. But he wouldn't have to technically because he still would be the leader of the party who's ultimately decided the membership gets the final say on that. So he could request a a membership vote, but I mean, at that point, you'd think he'd be pretty bruised uh, and embattled.
0: Yeah, because then you get the leaks and then you get the kind of death by a thousand cuts because you're not, um, unlike the liberals who will just, no matter, the house could be on fire, everything could be going wrong and they'll just kind of, what? No, nothing to see here. Everything's great. Um, But in politics, it's pretty ruthless. I mean, you certainly were there behind the scenes in Patrick Brown when uh, he went through leadership and then, of course, uh, when he was running as opposition leader of the PC party and then his downfall. I mean, you've seen how ruthless and ugly politics can be, not just by the opposition, but from within.
1: Oh, and it's often the the nasty side, you know. It's how the sausage is made that it probably turned most people off of politics. You know, for some reason, I guess some of us enjoy taking place take pace in it. But uh, I mean, listen, the the biggest question right now, and and I mean, there was a story by out with by Global News, Alex Batili. had a source just recently that uh, apparently Aaron O'Toole was calling around caucus, saying that he he'd reverse on some of his policies that he'd uh, you know kind of taken unilaterally. Uh, if the the caucus wouldn't revolt against them, I mean that's where it kind of gets to at this point. I, I think the real telling number is, traditionally this has never taken place. You know, certainly in Canada, uh, in a caucus at a caucus level, it, it's something that we typically leave to the party membership to decide. And I think that's why so many party members were were frustrated at Aaron O'Toole for not calling the leadership review immediately. Usually it does just happen that way. That it's it's pretty soon after. That's that's what happens. Mm. For Tim Hudak, for example, when he faced his yeah. leadership review, it was just scheduled for fairly soon after the election. Aaron O'Toole certainly tried to be a little too cute by half and thinking we could hold this off until next year. And I mean, you know, that's a long time to sit without, you know, the mandate from your members, especially when you flip-flopped on some, some really key conservative planks. His stance on guns changed. His stance on the yeah. carbon tax changed completely during the election. And and that, that frustrates the people who donate to the party and, and, and put in the time— and putting the work, volunteering, putting in long lines during an election campaign. And by doing so, he just, you know, I think he inevitably sped this up. Uh, yeah. But traditionally in a leadership review, you know, you usually need 70, 75 percent of support from the membership to, to hold on and, and not have other people coming for you and attacking you and that ruthless side of politics you talk about. He's already got over a third of his caucus publicly against him. That's not, and that doesn't even include the other one. So, I mean, I don't know what, how you go on to continue to lead a caucus where, you know, potentially just shy of half, if you do survive the vote, don't believe in your leadership.
0: Right. I mean, look, people want authenticity at the end of the day. And if you're just constantly seeing, saying, okay, I'll be this. Well, no, no, I'll be that. Oh, no, I'll be whatever you want me to be is not leadership. It's just blowing into the wind and hoping something sticks. I mean, he ran as a true-to-blue leader in the leadership, and that's why people turned to him. And then he flip-flopped on things like the carbon tax, and then all these policies that people were like, what the hell are you running on? And, and that's when I started saying, well, what is going on here? And ultimately, he lost because he couldn't sell it. And I think it was a mistake because carbon pricing, as you know, we're getting all... Like, another increase in March or April 1st. It's such a huge issue with inflation. Had he just stuck to his guns on it or actually proposed a plan that he could have gotten elected on, um, maybe he could use that to go and, and give solutions of what he would do to bring down cost of living. But, you know, Patrick Brown, and you well know this, in his leadership, he ran further, you know, true blue to the right. He got the social conservatives in. Then he also flipped to build this party um, and, and build back, be- or, you know, a, a much bigger base. But he actually got away with that. I mean, he burned some bridges and there was anger, but he still managed to to broaden that base of the PC party.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Patrick Brown certainly did a lot of hard work to try to do that. I mean, you know, the I guess it's one of those things we'll just never know. You know, the, Aaron O'Toole certainly tried to implement the exact same strategy uh, that looked like it was working for Patrick Brown. You know, he was winning by-elections. Yeah. Uh, he was winning, you know, the popular vote. He's winning, leading in almost every poll. Kathleen Wynne had plummeted. Aaron O'Toole had a different opponent. Justin Trudeau wasn't as low in the polls as Kathleen Wynne ever was. And, and I think there's certainly, you know, when Patrick Brown ran for, you know, as the kind of true blue candidate in that leadership race, that took place in 2015. They didn't go to the polls until 2018. Aaron O'Toole tried to be a true blue conservative, you know, in the summer of 2020, and then went to the polls yeah. in 2021. So you know, so it's it's you kind of almost need a little bit of time to pass if you're going to try to pull the wool over the eyes and and there's a lot of different, you know, media speculation and media targeting when you're talking about a, a provincial opposition candidate versus the guy trying to be the next prime minister. So I think ultimately, you know, it certainly hasn't worked. I I think the, you know, it's certainly telling the the source if it's true tonight that he's calling around and promising to flip-flop again like you said uh, authenticity matters and and when you're so blatantly willing to you know switch your stances on issues uh people aren't going to believe you no matter where you land and what you stand for
0: i got about 20 seconds um your three names that you see uh, kind of being the lead uh, contenders in in any kind of leadership
1: I mean, I think the, the, the ones open out there and Pierre Polyev certainly has the most speculation and I think most people are interested in the, the thought of him running, uh, but he didn't choose to run in the last one. Leslie Lewis uh, had an incredible showing in the last uh, leadership race out of nowhere. And then, I mean, who knows, you know, you could see somebody like Peter McKay come back and try it for another go around. Maybe one of the, you know, star Harper cabinet ministers finally takes a chance uh, to run and, and try to become leader.
0: I'll keep adding the name Patrick Brown because I don't think he's done yet, But and I think he's matured as a mayor, but we'll see what happens. All right, Chris, very much thank you, and we'll um, see what the next 24 hours brings us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. That's Chris Chapin, who is with Upstream uh, Strategy, and uh, we'll be watching that. Okay, so now that the lockdown restrictions are finally starting to lift, we're going to start getting a sense of the uh, destruction that has been caused not just to our economy, but mainly our main streets. And just because you have not seen a closed sign in the window, that does not mean a business has survived. Uh, I was reading an article about this. Apparently, the Bank of Canada recently noted something uh, called a uh, zombie business, our so zombie businesses, and they've seen a rise of these things. And this is a business no long, longer able to meet interest payments, but they're being kept afloat because of government aid. And aid is about to come to a stop. And so what happens in the next couple of months, is going to be crucial for their survival. Philip Cross is a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, also 36 years of Stats Canada, where he specialized in macroeconomics. Good to have you.
3: Thanks for having me on, Alex.
0: So, you know, when you read this article and you look um, through what has happened, you've had businesses that have been basically racking up debt since, you know, start one of the lockdowns and they just started losing money and they started borrowing money or they started moving money around or maybe they took out a second mortgage. They did whatever they had to do to survive. But meanwhile, they never really got the aid that they needed to make them whole, even though it had nothing to do with them. You know, they had no control over any of this.
3: Yeah, that's one been one of the real mysteries of the pandemic is why we haven't seen a uh, sharp increase in business bankruptcies or in closures. And it seems once you dig into the data it is that you know, it's it's like an iceberg that the real trouble is underneath the surface. You can't see it, but if you if you look down far enough it's there. And as you say, you know, a lot of firms are hanging on by their fingertips. They've taken out a lot of debt or they've been kept afloat by with uh, government loans, but neither one of those are sustainable sources of growth uh, over the longer term. As, as somebody said, you know, normally firms take out debt to grow. They don't take out mm-hmm. debt to survive. Taking out debt to survive is, uh, is uh, uh, very difficult, and it makes the assumption that everything is going to go back to where it was before the pandemic, and everything will be hunky-dory, and... The problem with that theory is that for a lot of firms, especially in downtown Toronto, uh, there's every reason to believe that mm-hmm. the world is not going to go back to the way it was. That a lot of people are going to keep rem- working remotely, at least part time, and uh, you know those firms, particularly in downtown, that rely on servicing these large office towers and, and the workers in them, uh, they're not going to see business return to where it was. In fact, even a return to where it was isn't going to be enough because of all the added debt they've taken Mm -hmm. on. Your business is actually going to have to improve, and boy, that's going to be difficult.
0: Yeah. And the hit's not equal for all, but they've all been hit. I mean, the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, as you know, did a, a survey of kind of trying to figure out how much loss was uh, accumulated by businesses. And they say the average business suffered about 170,000 uh, debt that has left them in the hole. Because I think the the assumption, Philip, for a lot of people as well, if they weren't uh, good at business, they wouldn't be in this problem, which is not true. It's that they were shut down. And these government aid programs, many of these businesses didn't qualify for them, or that it was too hard to qualify for them, or they came too late, or, or, or. The bottom line is, they weren't crafted um, to actually hold these businesses. And when you drive around, I I mean, I can talk to the situation in Toronto, it's really shocking to see how the main streets are changing, where restaurants and entertainment venues, these places that used to make the city really vibrant and come to life, are either completely shut down, or they're just barren, and you just don't know what the future of that is. And so when do you expect... To start seeing this translate to actual bankruptcies, because I, I got to be honest, I was surprised that we hadn't started to see the bankruptcies until I started to read this and learning about you know uh, the kind of uh, holding pattern that admit have, have been in.
3: Yeah, well, it may not be that long. I mean, it's uh, the Toronto Board of Trade issued some very interesting data yesterday. Uh, that uh, showed that businesses that are in arrears for three months or more uh, in their uh, debt payments, uh, uh, that's already started to increase. And, you know, that's sort of a leading indicator. If you can't pay your bills and you're three months behind, yeah. you know, you're really relying on the generosity of banks or, or the, the people who are holding that debt to uh, keep extending it. So. When people will start pulling the plug, you can't predict exactly, but there's clearly signs of stress there. And, uh, you know, and governments, you know, to, to be honest, that uh, or to be fair, you know, they're in a difficult position. I mean, clearly, if, if uh, the business population, if the people working downtown in Toronto, uh, if that doesn't go back to normal, you know we're going to need fewer restaurants and and fewer cleaning services and so on and so forth so you know we we can't keep everybody alive because the demand just isn't going to be there so we're going to have to let some firms go uh, if you if you bail out everybody forever you know and, yeah. and you don't go back to normal then you're going to end up wasting a lot of money so it, it's a really difficult situation for everybody the businesses the the governments. said there's no easy solution to this. Hardly surprising. I mean, you know, the pandemic has caused chaos in our society and in our economy. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a miracle that we've gotten this far without a lot of bankruptcies, but we're probably yeah. not going to put that off forever.
0: Yeah, and and there's many businesses that haven't yet even put some of the debt on the books yet. They've kind of been trying to play the shell game of moving things around. But, you know, we hear the talking point about roaring back and there'll be such a hunger to go out and do stuff and spend, spend, spend. But, you know, the picture has changed from last summer. I mean, food costs are soaring. Everything is more expensive, which means going out is going to be more expensive. Going to your restaurants are going to be more expensive. You've got inflation driving up the price. Everything is kind of trickling down and so uh, what does need to happen? Because once you do see these businesses go, they don't come back. And then you've got other problems because then landlords are like, "Where do they? who are they going to lease space to? Uh, the bricks and mortars, all that system has also changed.
3: Yeah, there's no easy solution to this. I mean, you know, if people have moved out of the downtown core, I mean, it is interesting that business traffic, foot traffic and, and uh, spending – in the outlying areas around Toronto appears to have gone back to pre pandemic levels. Uh, So the the problem is going to be those firms downtown and, you know, uh, do we want to keep throwing money at these people when the demand isn't there? I mean, you know, if, if the world has fundamentally changed, then businesses and our economy is going to have to change with it and trying to freeze everything in place and, and, keep things the way they were before isn't tenable. But that transition is going to be very painful for a lot of firms.
0: Yeah. Um, And how how forgiving in your mind um, will the banks be? I mean, look, they're in the business of making money. I think they've tried to work with people as much as they can. But how forgiving will they be? Because the last thing they want are are lots of bankruptcies on their books. They, They want the money.
3: Yeah, very good point. It's not in anybody, you know, nobody is going to make money off firms going business. It's going to be bad for banks. It's going to be bad for governors, uh, governments. Their mm-hmm. tax revenues are going to go down. It's going to be bad for employees. Uh, you know, it's just a really difficult situation. The one criticism I would make, I suppose, is that, you know, this was foreseeable. This was predictable. Yeah. And we should have been helping people to make this transition and instead we just kind of gave money to people and said well just stay in place and freeze where you are and this will all blow over in in a few months and here we are 2 years later and uh yeah. it's you know it's it's a really really difficult situation for a lot of firms
0: yeah and the up and the down and the uncertainty and 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 the change in uh, business and selling patterns and buying patterns everything is completely turned on its head so Hopefully uh, we're wrong. Hopefully um, you know these businesses can climb their way out, but no question about it, it's a very, very tough times. Philip, I very much appreciate your time.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Alex.
0: And that is Philip Cross, who is with us from the uh, McDonald laurie Institute, but he was also with StatsCan for an awful long time. He's also been reporting for some time. I will say that uh, inflation is not 4.8 percent; it is actually closer to six percent, which is probably why people are like, "Why? Why can't I afford this?" Well, because it's more expensive than we're being told. <laughs> You know, the grass is greener, they say on the other side, and certainly if we're talking about the other side of the border. Uh, When it comes to this us versus them debate, when you actually compare how Ontario does to some of our neighboring states, you know, the areas around the Great Lakes, the Rust Belt, uh, Ontario's average income, when you look at 2020 numbers, measured $19,000 $19,000 less than what they are making. So if you're living in Michigan in the same kind of comparable job as in Ontario, you're making 20 grand more than what someone here is making. And we're not creating jobs. Wages have stalled. We've got too many governments at every level constantly taking our share of the paycheck. But we have basically gone from the economic engine of this country to sputtering out where you've got big urban centers like Toronto and Ottawa growing, but smaller regional communities are being left behind. This is, of course, in all the findings of the Fraser Institute's latest measure of Ontario's regional prosperity gap. Ben Eisen joins me now. He's a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, and he co-authored this latest study looking into how we fell so far behind. Good to have you.
2: Thanks for having me on, Alex.
0: So I kind of zeroed into some of the numbers, and and I'm kind of comparing it to the Rust Belt, those um regions that kind of mirror what we used to have in the manufacturing sector of southwestern Ontario. When you look at a place like Michigan, where someone there would be making $65,000 versus here, where the same person doing the same kind of work would be making $45,000, that's a huge drop um when you compare those numbers over the last uh, couple of decades.
2: It is, and those are the key, the two key findings of the report that we released today. Uh, the first of which, as you, you've alluded to, is when we looked at the broadest overall measure of economic prosperity, which is gross domestic product per person. That's sort of no one indicator is perfect, but that's the sort of best comprehensive one of prosperity. As you mentioned, Ontario is about twenty thousand dollars behind the average uh, of our peer jurisdictions in the Great Lake regions. In the Great Lake region, excuse me. Uh, which has a lot, which are, are you know, our trading partners and places we compete for with investment, and places that have similar uh, profiles with respect to their sectors of their economy. So they're a natural comparison, and we're about twenty thousand dollars per person behind uh, the average for that region, uh, and th- th- that's a problem. But what's maybe the bigger problem is that that gap is growing over time. Uh, that since the, the start of the century, around two thousand, uh, the rest of the provinces, the rest of the regions, grown about eighteen point five percent. Ontario's growth has been 6% in terms of real per person economic growth. So there's a big gap and it's getting getting bigger over time. Those are our two key findings and both of them should be uh, worrying for Ontarians.
0: Yeah, and we've talked about this on the show before when you uh, had looked into the numbers of the disparity where Ontario seems to now have two very clear economies. You've got the 416 and places like Ottawa, which are growing at a pretty hefty, nice, healthy pace. But then you go outside into the 905 to again, uh, Southwestern Ontario, what used to be the manufacturing hub. And they live a very different life. There is no growth. It's all stalled growth. And so there's the us versus de- them, which I think is a, I think leads, and I don't know if your data shows it to this growing sense of anger of people who don't feel that anyone is fighting for them.
2: You raised such a, such an important point about the the gap between different parts of Ontario because it can come very easy uh, if you 're in Toronto, the immediately surrounding area, or in Ottawa not to recognize just how significant the challenges are and have been in other parts uh, of the province. You mentioned southwestern Ontario and, and i'll bring, that, uh, bring it around to that because what gets overlooked is that Ontario is different than other parts of the country, and that outside of our sort of biggest city. Uh, which is Toronto, of course, uh, when you get outside, you still have big population centres with lots of people. Uh, London, Ontario is about as populous as Halifax, and that's the biggest mm-hmm. big hub city of Atlantic Canada. Uh, with southwestern Ontario, once you go you know, past, you know, past not Toronto, past Hamilton, you take the rest, southwestern Ontario is about as big as Atlantic Canada, taken as a whole. So these are not you know, small, unpopulated areas we're talking about that are seeing weak economic growth. These are big, substantial places with, uh, where lots of Canadians live, Uh, where we've seen so little job growth and economic prosperity over the last 15 or 20 years. And again, as you say, in parts of the province that used to be amongst the most prosperous in the country, uh, like southwestern Ontario. And so the economic stagnation that occurred there uh, is a very important part of the numbers that we show today, showing why across the province, taken as a whole, uh, we've fallen so far behind our American peers.
0: Yeah, and I know, uh, you know, I won't put you into a partisan position, but I will kind of, you know, as we watch what's happening in the Conservative Party where they're looking for new leadership and, and you see the, the anger of protesters and all those kinds of things, um, what needs to happen, I think, and what a lot of people are looking for is that one party um, who will actually deliver and, you know, bring them back into their thoughts, because, you know, all the decision making seems to be centered in the big urban centers, whether it's a uh, Montreal or Ottawa or Toronto, all these vote rich centers. But no one seems to be representing and fighting actually for the little guy. I mean, we hear all the time from Doug Ford, we're going to roar back. Well, that's a great talking point. But how on earth is he actually going to bring back the manufacturing sector? It's not coming back, sadly.
2: Well, certainly I understand there, there, there's huge challenges in the manufacturing sector that we've faced over the past uh, 20 years. You know, we've had very high electricity prices, everyone knows, uh, in Ontario for lots of the last two decades. And that's been an important story and an important part uh, of what's happened in, in, the, in the region. And, and it's been a challenge for Ontario, and not just in that region. Uh, it's hurt businesses and it's hurt uh, residents across the province uh, for for, de- for decades. Um, but also, there's a large tax burden, which makes it harder for, business mm-hmm. to compete, for businesses to compete. Uh, these are things, there's a growing government debt, which raises concerns about more de- more um, taxes in the future, which, again, is a, a pr- pr- gets in the way of investment and prosperity. So there's certainly, uh, there's some things that are outside of our control, uh, things that will happen in the global economy that exert pressure on us, that make things harder. Uh, and there's some things within our control, like do we have competitive tax policy. Mm-hmm. Are we managing public right. finances responsibly, and are we doing what we can to keep electricity prices manageable? And in a lot of ways, Ontario has underperformed in those areas over the past 20 years. And that's a reason why we see some of what we see uh, in this study, which is substantially lower levels of growth and lower levels of prosperity in Ontario than in our peer jurisdictions around the Great Lakes.
0: Yeah. And it, and this disparity that you talk about, um, it, it didn't happen overnight. It, it happens over years where it erodes away. And so I think a lot of people, you know, they just kind of wake up one day and say, like, how did it come that I'm so broke or I can't make ends meet anymore? And then they realize, oh, my God, I'm not able to afford the things that my neighbors got. Um, so it's hard for people to park the blame because it goes back, uh, you know, years in the making to bringing us to the point we're at now.
2: I think that the point that you raise here is so, it's so crucial, and it's why public policy matters, and it's why we talk about different policies, and when we're discussing them, if you actually dig down, very often the effect on growth it, it looks, looks small. Uh, Let's say the difference between one policy and another is 0.1% of economic growth annually. Uh, That sounds small, but over time, it's big. And if you add lots of policies, all of which have that effect of a a little bit of effect on growth in a single year, uh, even if it's very small in a single year, if you have a bunch of policies like that and you have 15 or 20 years, it adds up to being really important. And that's why public policy is so important. Uh, Lots of factors affect growth. Policy is just one of them. But if you get policy right, you give yourself an advantage for faster growth over time And that translates into more prosperity and a big difference over time. And so that's, you know, thinking about the last 20 years, we should also be thinking about the next 20 years. What can we do at the margin to encourage that little bit of extra growth uh, that will lead to a brighter future for ourselves, uh, for for people's children in the region, uh, and for everybody, uh, so that hopefully we perform better over the next 20 years than we have over the last 20 years.
0: Yeah, less talk and more actual walk, but... uh... It's interesting that this is all kind of coalescing now to where we are, uh, where people are actually starting to see, oh, so this is what happens when you don't invest properly and you drive out jobs and and manufacturing and all these things. Ben, uh, I know we'll talk again. Very much appreciate your time.
2: Thank you for having me on. Great chatting.
0: Ben Eisen is with the Fraser Institute digging into these numbers. And so that should be a big Ontario provincial election issue. Don't just tell me you're going to roar back. How are you going to do it? Both Del Duca and Ford have some explaining to do. The Wynn-McGindy government destroyed manufacturing in this province, but, you know, what's Doug Ford done to make it any better? It should be asked. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.